Tonight we are going to be looking at a little different part of the sanctuary. We're going to be shifting gears from the courtyard into the holy place. And uh, so I, I wish we had a 10-day VBS. Um, I don't know about the, the ones doing the kids program in there. They're wishing the same. But uh, we could spend more time, obviously, on each part of the, the heavenly sanctuary or the earthly sanctuary as it typified the heavenly sanctuary. And it seems like a bit of a, a rush even to try to do it in just a few nights. Um, one thing that we are planning, just so you're aware, it's something that's your option uh, to come to. We would like to have a graduation program for the Vacation Bible School this Saturday morning. And our final lecture, where I'll be speaking during the 11 o'clock hour here um, on the sanctuary once again. And uh, we'll have a little program where the kids will be sharing what they've done and what they've learned. So if you're able, um, you're welcome to be part of that. Um, today we're going to be, as I mentioned, looking at the holy place ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. And one thing that you've probably noticed already is that there are more than one lesson, you might say, we could draw from each of the different symbols in the sanctuary. I mean, that's almost goes without saying, because if we just think about the sacrifice, for example, we have the lamb, and the lamb represents who? Jesus. And, but then we also have the priest, and the priest represents Jesus as well, you see? So it, it, some people might like to read the uh, sanctuary and try to have one meaning for each item and just sort of stick with that, but it doesn't really work that way with the sanctuary. If anything, we, say, we see Jesus everywhere we look. That's, uh, that's what I love about the sanctuary, is the more you look at the sanctuary, the more you see Jesus. And we're going to see that again tonight. We're going to see that even in the holy place, we see Jesus. And that's the wonderful thing about studying the sanctuary. And so as we enter the holy place, we find there was a, an article of furniture that we might notice first if we were going in to see it. We might first see the menorah or the seven-branched candlestick with its seven lamps that were kept burning perpetually in the sanctuary. And the reason we might notice it first is simply because it is what is shedding light for us to see the rest of the articles in the holy place, right? And so this is, this is what is guiding us as we, as we find our way through the sanctuary, and indeed we'll begin with it here tonight. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to Exodus chapter 25, and we'll read Moses' instructions to the Israelites in, uh, well, to Moses, but God's instruction to Moses. I think I just got my tank tangled up. We'll read God's instructions to Moses. And Exodus 25, continuing on with verse 31. Um, Exodus 25 and verse 31 says this, And you shall make a candlestick of pure gold. Of beaten work shall the candlestick be made, his shaft and his branches, his bowls, his knops, and his flowers shall be of the same. All of it pure gold. Now, when you think of that, and then when you look at the amount of gold that was actually used, um, a, um, a talent or so for all of these vessels and so forth that were made in the candlestick, it, it's pretty apparent that what he means when, you talk, when he talks about pure gold doesn't necessarily mean solid gold. Do you understand the difference? 
Um, if you were to make something of solid gold, you would usually cast it, melt it down into the various shapes and connect it together. Whereas a beaten work, it would probably be hollow. So he would, he would make a tube, but this, was, this, was, this required skilled craftsmanship to make these branches out of beaten gold, not of cast gold, but of beaten gold. That's what it says here. It says, um, you shall, uh, uh, of beaten work shall the candlestick be made, his shaft and his branches, his bowls, his knobs, his flowers shall all be of beaten work. And so this would be a process whereby a, a craftsman would take gold and begin shaping it and molding it, not by casting it and melting it, but by beating it into shape and by stretching it and, and beating it back into itself and making whatever shapes that he would want it to be in. And um, as we continue on, we look at some of these instructions. We're not going to read all of these verses here tonight, but it, let's skip down to verse 37, Exodus 25 and verse 37. It says, And thou shalt make the seven lamps thereof, and they shall light the lamps thereof, that they may give light over against it, and the tongs thereof and the snuff dishes thereof shall be of pure gold, and uh, notice what he says, and look that thou make them after their pattern, which was shown you in the mount. So Moses has gone into the mount with God, and God has evidently given him a vision or some sort of a blueprint or drawings. I don't know what that was, but there was a pattern shown Moses when he was in the mount meeting with God. And God is telling him here, make it according to the pattern that's been given to you. And so this branched, seven-branched candlestick was to be made of pure gold and beaten gold nonetheless. Now, if we were to have any confidence in what the candlestick or what any of the articles of furniture looked like, particularly, I guess you might say, in the, um, the tab temple of Herod during the time of Christ, it would be the seven-branched candlesticks. And the reason is that here you find a, an engraving that was done to commemorate the triumph of Titus over Jerusalem. And if you'll go to Rome today, you will see this picture. Um, if you go just across the street from the Colosseum, the ruins of the Colosseum, um, past Max, Maximilian's arch to the smaller arch of Titus, it's it's, it was placed over the, the way that they would bring the, the, uh, a victory, that they would bring the, the conquered peoples into Rome, and it was sort of like the gate into the Forum. So if you were to go from the Colosseum to the Forum, you would have to go past, today, because they don't allow you to go through it, you would have to go through the Arch of Titus. And Titus was the Roman emperor who conquered and destroyed, leveled Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. And inside Titus's arch in Rome, you will see this depiction made back during the time of Titus of a commemoration of the victory over the Jews. And what is being depicted here? The Roman soldiers carrying out of the temple before it was burned they're carrying out the menorah, the seven-branched candlestick. And so we have a pretty good idea at least what the candlestick looked like during the time of Christ. Um, and you would assume that it was similar throughout the rest of the sanctuaries and the sanctuary services. Um, we, we have this, um, we, we notice that the branches evidently were all of equal height. We see some artist conceptions today where the center is taller and they slope down, and that, there's nothing wrong with that, but this one is showing all the branches at equal height. You see some of those 
those um, uh, decorations, you might say, along the sides of those branches that uh, made it more ornate. Here you can see a little, a little better view, a little closer up, what it might have looked like. And um, again, I'm not sure exactly. We don't know who made this engraving, but it was made you know, by Titus to commemorate his victory, and so it would have been a, a contemporary artist, uh, at least of someone who would have seen it. And so this is some evidence that we have that would indicate what the menorah, the seven-branch candlestick, would actually have looked like during the time of Christ. And it's found right there in the city of Rome and the Arch of Titus. And um, I don't know, when, when I travel, if I, my interest is in history, I guess, so I enjoy places like this, but I particularly enjoy biblical history. Um, when you see places uh, that the Bible mentions, or when you see items that are biblical in nature, that are historical as well, it's always very fascinating for me, and um, so I enjoy that a lot. So here we find that this candlestick is made out of gold. There are seven lamps, and there's different uh, utensils to be used with those lamps. These lamps were never to go out. They were to be continually burning. They were to be refilled daily, and um, as a part of the duties of the priests, they would keep these lamps. They would keep these lamps burning. Now, there's num a number of things that we could see here as symbols. And let's just take a little bit of time to look at these symbols. We, once again, we can see that it, it's probably counterproductive to be dogmatic about one thing representing only one thing. There are many things that we can learn. But I want, to see, I want us to see some verses in the Bible about gold. And um, this is helpful because the candlestick is not the only thing that's made out of gold in the sanctuary. And so we'll, we'll benefit from this knowledge as we move onward. I want us to turn, first of all, to the book of Revelation. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. This is the message of Jesus um, depicted, and we'll be looking at that in just a minute, depicted as standing am among the seven candlesticks. In Revelation chapter 3, Revelation 2 and 3, he gives these messages to his church throughout time. And in verse 18, we read the following. I counsel thee to buy of me... Gold, and then what does he say? Gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesalve that thou mayest see. Well, some people might say, what do you mean, Jesus? I counsel thee to buy of me? Um, that sounds like we, you know, we need to be making some, some maybe offerings or doing some deeds or going on a pilgrimage or something to have this gold that he says is tried in the fire. But actually, that's not what Jesus is trying to say. You can put your, in your notes here, Isaiah chapter 55, where he talks about buying. In this case, he's talking about buying um, bread um, without money and without price. We don't think in the way in that way today. We think if you're buying something, it, there must be some sort of financial or some sort of a transaction. But when it comes to buying spiritual things, we've already had it purchased for us, and it's a matter of accepting it. Um, but what is he talking about when he says buying gold tried in the fire? Let's turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7. A similar phrase is used here in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7. And um, we find that 
This gold tried in the fire can be symbolizing actually something that comes from our experience. Notice with me in verse 7, that the trial of your, what does it say? Trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So here you have the, the, the Apostle Peter telling us that our faith is like gold tried in the fire. Our own Christian experience, as we are living for Jesus, we're going to go through trials, are we not? Are there going to be some things we don't understand? Is there going to be heat sometimes that it seems like we cannot bear? Yes, but the promise is, according to Peter, the promise is that if we'll just stay in the fire, if we'll allow God to try our hearts and to try our faith, He will bring something good out of that, even as precious, more precious than gold that perishes. He'll bring forth an experience that has been tested and tried. And uh, you might say that the gold tried in the, fair, in the fire is the character of God as it's reproduced in us. Jesus himself, of course, is represented by the gold. He's pure gold, right? And um, he himself is the most worthy of, uh, worth, uh, valuable of, of anything we could think of, commodities. And so Jesus is purely, uh, is truly representing, represented by the gold, but our experience also is to be constantly refined and purified so that we can become more like God. And so gold represents both the righteousness of Jesus, which he had, and we're going to talk more about that as we go through the holy place. As we see the holy place, we're going to see that there's so many things that represent Jesus and his experience, not just as the God of the universe, but as our Redeemer as a human being coming here to live and to die. And so gold represents Jesus, but it can also represent our own experience as we are tested and tried and and purified um, to become more like Him. Many verses we could look at to that extent, but we don't take time tonight. Also, notice with me back in the book of Exodus, we're going to look back at Exodus about what the lamps were to be filled with. Exodus chapter 27, a few chapters after the instructions on building the lampstand. Exodus chapter 27, we notice in verses 20 and 21. Exodus 20, uh, 27, 20 and 21. It says, And thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring thee pure oil olive beaten for the light to cause the lamp to burn always. In the tabernacle of the congregation, without the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall order it from evening unto morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever unto their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. And so the instructions here were that there was a specific fuel to, fire, to, to light these lamps. And what fuel was that? olive oil. And how was that oil to be taken from the olives? It beaten. Very specific instructions to be given. This was to be beaten uh, from the olives. Um, no other process was to be used. I suppose squeezing would be very similar. Uh, pressure of some sort would be very similar. Um, but this is, he specifically says beaten, and this was the way the oil was to be taken. And once again, we can see a, a representation of Jesus. Jesus, of course, um, was beaten for us, wasn't he? 
Um, we can read about that in Isaiah chapter 53. But we also find that typically in the Old Testament, the oil is symbolizing something else or someone else. Who's that? The Holy Spirit. And we can put some text in our notes for that in Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah, the next to last book of the Old Testament, just before Malachi, the last. Zechariah chapter 4, we actually find a sanctuary scene, and uh, we won't get into explaining it. Joshua, the, the Hebrew name for Jesus, is seen standing there and so forth in, uh, in chapters 3 and 4. And uh, notice with me, it says that um, verse 2, Zechariah 4 and verse 2, And he said unto me, What do you see? And he says, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. This is a little bit of different symbolism than we saw in the sanctuary, but it's clearly the same type of thing, right? Seven candlesticks, and also there are seven pipes feeding them. Um, two olive trees stand by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side thereof. And um, he asks what these are, and these are, these are uh, channels through which the oil is being fed to the lampstand. And notice what the response is when he asks what all this represents. Verse 6, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, nor by power, but by what? Who? My spirit, saith the Lord. Now, some scholars, as they look here in Zechariah chapter 4, they actually see a, another image, you might say, of the courtroom in heaven. You have the lampstand, and you have these channels through which oil is flowing to the lamp, and then there are these two witnesses, two olive trees standing on either side of it. Um, there's a couple of ways scholars have understood this. One is to understand that these two olive trees represent actually similar to the two angels that stood next to the throne of God. Um, who, who was one of those angels? Lucifer. And Lucifer lost his position, of course, when he sinned. And um, someone else who we would assume was the second of command must have taken his place. And I suppose God replaced Lucifer with, with a, another angel. But we see that there was one particular angel, and this is a little bit of, I guess you might say, um, you might call it speculation because we don't have time to go into all of the research behind it, but you remember that there's one particular angel who has been instrumental in communicating visions and dreams to mankind, and that's Gabriel. And some scholars are convinced that Gabriel is filling the role that Lucifer would have filled. And that these two angels next to the throne of God, they're not just there for God's glory, but in the case of humanity, in the case of the fall and the redemption of man, these two angels serve a special purpose in communicating the Holy Spirit and the message of the Spirit to mankind. Very interesting study we could do. Um, another way of looking at it, and, and at least I've read some scholars who see these two as being the New Testament and the Old Testament communicating together the truth about Jesus through the Holy Spirit, of course. But the oil is the Holy Spirit. In any case, we, we see that very clearly. There's another symbol that we have here, and that's light. And if there's any of these symbols uh, regarding the lampstand that we can clearly see points forward to Jesus, it would be the light, right? And um, we're going to look at at least three different things this light represents, but we'll start with Jesus. And Jesus... Um, it's said of in John chapter 1 and verse 9, that was that true light 
which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So while we might look at other sources of light or other things that this light represents, one thing becomes very plain right away, and that is that Jesus is the ultimate source of all light. Jesus is where that light comes from. And so if we read in John chapter 1, verse 5, we see this a number of times. Uh, verse 4, beginning with, it says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shone in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And then he goes on and he says, The same John came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, John the Baptist, but he was sent to bear witness of that light, that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And so Jesus, we can see very clearly, is represented by the light from the candlestick. And uh, it shouldn't surprise us, right? <laughs> because almost everything else in the sanctuary we've seen as symbols of Jesus. And Jesus has certainly picked them up in the New Testament and, and, um, and used those. Um, and, and certainly, he himself claimed to be a light or the light of the world. Another thing we can understand, and this is in some ways just another way of describing Jesus, when the psalmist says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Remember that well-known passage in Psalm 119? Um, Jesus is the word, right? And so this isn't a contradiction. This is just saying Jesus lights the world, not only through his time here literally interacting with his disciples, but now as we study the word of God, he lights us through that. He gives us understanding. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Another way we can understand this is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. And Jesus turns it around in the Sermon on the Mount, the longest sermon Jesus ever preached. And he says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Now, it's interesting because while we want to make very, very clear that Jesus is the primary understanding of this light, that was the true light. And, and only, only because of Jesus is the written word, the light unto our feet and a lamp, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, right? And only because of Jesus, the true light, is the church, or are we also the light of the world? Does this make sense? And so there's nothing in ourselves, there's nothing in me or you or the church collectively even innately of ourselves that would make us the light of the world, only as Jesus is abiding in our hearts by faith. And yet Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Now, turn with me to the book of Revelation. Because we've already discovered in the last couple nights that the book of Revelation is replete with sanctuary imagery, and we're going to see it once again here tonight, Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to notice a picture of the sanctuary, and uh, we're going to begin, let's begin with verse 12. Um, John says in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 12, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and being turned, I saw, what did he see? Seven golden candlesticks. Where is he? He's in the sanctuary. What does the sanctuary represent? Of course, it represents what's in heaven, the true throne room of God. And this is where John is taken in vision. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his foot and a girt about with a paps with a golden girdle and so forth. We won't go into this whole description of Jesus. But Jesus is seen walking among the seven candlesticks. As I said... Jesus is represented by the seven candlesticks, but here he's also walking among them, right? Um, there's so many different layers of, 
of symbolism that we see here. And um, we'll notice here in Revelation particularly what the candlesticks are being used to represent. Notice with me in verse 18. Well, we'll read the end of 17 for completeness. Fear not, Jesus says, for I am the first and the last. I am he that lives and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of, the de of death. Write the things which you have seen, and things which are, and things which are to be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels, or ministers, or leaders, you might say, of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which you saw are the what? Seven churches. And then Jesus goes on in chapter 2, the next verse begins with Ephesus, the first church, and on to Smyrna and Thyatira and so forth, looking at each of these seven churches. Now, these were seven literal churches, but they were also representing different eras or periods of time in Christian history. In fact, um, the only... Let me, let me back up just a little bit. Um, it's hard to... It's hard to separate the study of the sanctuary from the study of prophecy. And um, these are two areas that I both really, really enjoy. Um, by diving into Revelation without studying the first symbolic prophetic book, we're at a disadvantage. Sort of like starting calculus without going through, you know, primary school. Um, it, it's a little challenging. But what you'll find if you go back to the book of Daniel, which is, which is the first symbolic end-time book, um, the book of Daniel gave series of visions, Daniel chapter 2, the image, starting with Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold, and down to the very time, the last days when the God of heaven sets up a kingdom, right? From the time of the prophet down to the time of the end. Daniel chapter 7 basically goes over the same thing, from the time of the prophet to the time of the end. Daniel 8 does the same thing. You understand the, the, the pattern here. It's not as though we see consecutive prophecies starting where the last one left off. No, there's what we call the repeat and enlarge principle, and that's, that's a whole study in itself. We won't get into too far into prophecy. But in Revelation, we see the same thing happening, only in Revelation, it assumes we learn the principles from the book of Daniel, the interpretive principles. So there's no, there's no explanation given like in Daniel. And in, in, in Revelation, it begins with seven churches, again, studying, covering the time of the prophet down to the time of the end. Then it goes into the seven seals, time of the prophet down to the time of the end, and the seven trumpets down to the time of the end as well. So we see the patterns, is all I'm saying, from the book of Daniel being repeated in the book of Revelation. So when we get to the book of Revelation, we see these, these seven churches representing God's people in the Christian era, and they are represented by the lampstand, the candlestick. So just like Jesus says, you are the light of the world, John the Revelator, or Jesus here, is affirming. Does this make sense? He's affirming that the church is also represented by this lampstand, lighting the, the world. Of course, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? The oil. It's because of Jesus, who is the true light, which lights every man who comes into the world. Um, let's not think it's anything that we can do of ourselves, not at all. It's because of Jesus, through His might, through his power, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And so we, the church is represented by the, um, by the candlestick as well here. Now I want to look at one more verse in Revelation before we move on. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1, the very next verse, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he that holds the seven stars in his hand, 
who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. We saw this earlier in chapter 1 also. Where is Jesus? He's walking among the seven candlesticks who represent what? His people, right? Isn't that comforting to know? You know, sometimes life, especially in this fallen world, life can get pretty discouraging, can't it? And uh, we might... We might tend to feel alone or forsaken. One might tend to feel like just things aren't going as they should. But the, the picture here, which is worth a thousand words, is that of Jesus being with his people. And uh, I'm so thankful for that picture. It's not that Jesus is somewhere removed and he's just saying, go to it. He's here with us. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, right? I'll be with you until the end's of the age. So let's move on now to the northern side of the tabernacle, the holy place. And here we find the table of showbread. Now remember, which side is uh, which side did Lucifer want to set his throne above? The sides of the north, that's right. And we understand this particularly to be a location uh, where the throne of God itself is. And this table had a crown about it. Again, a symbol of royalty. Exodus chapter 25, once again, Exodus 25, and we're going to read verses 23 and 24. Exodus 25, 23 and 24. This is the instructions that Moses received. You shall make a table of shittim wood, or acacia wood. Two cubits shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, and make it thereto a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt make a border of an hand breadth round about, and thou shalt make a border crown to border thereof round about. And it, he went on to talk about four rings to carry it, and so forth. And here this table of showbread was to be made the same height as the mercy seat on the ark. Interesting. And it was also the same height as the grate that was suspended in the bottom of the burnt offering altar of burnt sacrifice. Um, now, whether there's significance to that or not, but I, I find it very interesting. Often, artist depictions and my own imagination have led me to think that this table of showbread was sort of like a low-slung, almost like a, like a um, what do you call the tables in the living room where you put, like a coffee table, yeah. Almost like a coffee table. That's sort of my imagination. But if you read the description, it was actually to be the same height as this mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Covenant. Once again, making us wonder about this whole um, business of where the throne of God was, is located in the heavenly sanctuary. Um, the ark being the presence of God and the sides of the north here, the, all, the table of showbread as well. Now, if we, if we look into the sanctuary, we'll remember that this is placed then opposite of the um, candlestick, opposite of the golden candlesticks. And if we turn to Exodus chapter 40, you'll see um, how this is described and how it was to be taken care of. Exodus chapter 40 and uh, verse 22. Um, this is how describing how Moses obeyed the commandments of God in the building of the tabernacle. 
And it says in Exodus chapter 40 and verse 22, And he put the table in the tent of the congregation upon the side of the tabernacle northward, outside of the veil, and he set bread in order upon it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put the candlestick in the tent of the congregation over against the table, over on the side of the tabernacle southward. And so the, the tables to the north, the candlesticks on the south, and he lights the lamp and so forth. Now, there's some indication or some instructions given in Exodus and Leviticus about taking care of the bread. There's a particular recipe that we'll look at here in a minute, or at least refer to. Um, but some of our understanding of this table of showbread is come to us from the Mishnah, from the, from the scribes' writings about how they took care of the sanctuary service. And um, we do understand that this was replaced. There was fresh bread made every Friday. And on Sabbath, this uh, bread would be replaced. The stacks of bread would be replaced. The old would be taken and eaten by the priests. Um, this was one of the things that, that they did. Now, if we look at this, this, what this symbolizes, we can, we can, well, let me just back up a little bit here. Josephus records, because Josephus um, actually saw this article of furniture being carried out of the temple. Josephus was the historian, the Jewish historian, who was at the destruction of Jerusalem and recorded much of it in his antiquities. And um, he actually described, he went back and wrote down his verbal description of what the table looked like. It said, it had, it had feet also, the lower half of which were complete feet, resembling those to which the Dorians put to their bedsteads, but the upper parts towards the table were wrought into a square form. And from what I can understand of what scholars think the Dorians put on their beds, bedsteads, um, these would have been, you know how you have furniture with the sort of sloped out legs that go down and then his feet? Um, this is essentially what Josephus was describing here. In, in one place it's described as sort of like looking like the the back leg of a sheep, okay, um, with that curve and um, with actual feet on the bottom. And uh, Josephus describes the tops as being squared off as they got closer to the table, um, somewhat similar to some furniture we might still see today. Now, what does this bread represent? Turn with me to John chapter 6. Maybe this is the classic chapter on bread because Jesus over and over describes himself as the bread of life. And uh, we can see that in a number of places here in John chapter 6. Um, look with me, for example, at verse 48. John chapter 6 and verse 48. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven if any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And he goes on. You can notice with me how he continues on, and um, he keeps describing the uh, bread himself as the bread of life. And his disciples had a hard time. How can we eat your flesh and drink your blood? This is a hard saying, right? And he explains this in John chapter 6 and verse 63, he says, he says, um, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. 
So Jesus wasn't actually condoning any type of cannibalism. He wasn't saying that the priest, he was to be offered and eaten literally, nothing like that. No, not at all. But he was saying, I represent the truth that if you'll partake of me, if you'll eat of me, and that is communicated, of course, through his words, through the word of God, then you will have, have life. Um, and so here you find the, the showbread. We could spend a lot of time, like I mentioned, we could probably spend an evening on each of these articles of furniture. But Jesus is represented by the bread there. And if we look at how the bread was to be made, and it describes this in Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 5, only the finest of the wheat was to be used. And they actually used, according to the Mishnah, they actually used a, a screening process where they would take and they would grind the flour and um, the, uh, the, uh, the description is that it was to be ground between two stones, sort of like, um, well, like a, like a stone mill. But then they, were to, they would sift it, and after they sifted it, they would sift it again. They would actually go through, I think it was 11 siftings, till they found, till they were, it was the finest, most uniform flour, almost like a refined flour, that it, this was no poor man's bread they were making. This was like very exquisite bread, the finest, finest quality that they could make as they were to represent Jesus. And you might, you might look at how this was done as also representing how Jesus came in his humanity and his own character, his own witness, his own testimony here in this world was ground, was refined, you might say, through the pressure, through the trials that he endured. In Isaiah chapter 53, particularly, we find this um, prophecy. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Look with me in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8. And we'll look at a couple of little verses here as we move through this. Hebrews 5 and verse 8, and this is what it says about Jesus. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Isn't that interesting? Jesus himself went through the refining that you and I have to go through as we're living in a pressure-filled world as well. And it's because of that that he is able to understand what we're going through. Notice with me in just the previous chapter, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. It says, For we have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come, what does it say? Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'm thankful for Jesus, aren't you? Um, it wasn't easy for that wheat to become bread. But because of that, the people could eat, right? And because Jesus went through the trials and the troubles and the refining that he went through, 
we also now have someone that we can go to who understands what we're experiencing and will go through it with us. The bread was then to be mixed with oil and with salt. Salt was a part of most of the things that were done at the sanctuary. It has a preserving and, and uh, of course, an enhancing quality about it. And the bread was to be mixed with oil and salt, or that wheat, that ground wheat, was to be mixed with oil and salt. Um, and perhaps we could see in this, once again, the, the, the mingling of divinity with Jesus' experience here on earth. The Holy Spirit and His Father were certainly a part of everything that He did. We have to move on, though, and look at our last article in the holy place in the ark, uh, the altar of incense. And let's look now in Exodus chapter 30, Exodus chapter 30, and the first few verses. Let's see how this is described. Exodus 30, verses 1 through 3. It says, And thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon, of shittim wood or acacia wood, thou shalt make it. A cubit shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof. Four square it shall be, and two cubits shall be the height thereof. The horns thereof shall be the same. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, the top thereof and the sides thereof round about, and the horns thereof. And thou shalt make unto it a crown of gold round about. Now, this is very interesting because if, if we look at the instructions given about the ark, it's very clear that it was to be placed right before the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. We see that in verse 6 of the same chapter. It says, And thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. So this is where God says, I will meet with you, right? This is the whole point of the sanctuary. And on a daily basis, as the priest would go into the sanctuary and as he would take fire from the altar of sacrifice out in the courtyard, and this was part of what he did every day, the priest would trim the lamps and refill the oil and keep them burning constantly, and he would take fire from the altar and put it in a censer and put incense in the censer and put the censer there on top of the altar of, burnt, of, of incense. Um, but he says, this is where I'm going to meet with you. In verse 7, And Aaron shall burn thereon sweet incense every morning. When he dresses the lamps, he shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at evening, he shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your in generations. And he says, You shall offer no strange incense thereon, nor burnt sacrifice, nor meat offerings, Neither shall you pour drink offering thereon. The altar of incense was only to be used for incense. And um, this was the instruction that God gave to Moses and that Moses was following as he built the sanctuary. Now, what would this incense represent? As Jesus, um, we found Jesus, of course, being represented in most things. Um, of course, the priest offering the incense is Jesus, right? And at the presence of God... Um, Right across that veil in the most holy place was Jesus. Um, but what, we, what, what is very interesting is that at times in the Old Testament, this altar of incense is actually considered a part of not the holy place where it was located, but the most holy place. 
And we see that in 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 22, where, um, where this is how the revised version says, and Then next he overlaid the whole house with gold, talking about Solomon's temple, in order that the whole house might be perfect, even the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold. Very interesting because we, we see that the ministry of the altar of incense is closely related to the Ark of the Covenant, right? And it's closely related to the very place where God's glory dwelt, the Shekinah glory, on the mercy seat. Um, it's as if God's people, as they approached the very presence of God, they could not do it, even in the priest, could not do it himself, but with this incense that represented something very specific. Um, I want us to just look at a couple of, of verses that is, is um, again, from Revelation that would help us to understand what's going on here in Revelation chapter 8 this time. Revelation chapter 8. Did you all realize how much of the sanctuary is found in Revelation? It's interesting that uh, some scholars have calculated that about 75% of the language of Revelation is actually borrowed from the Old Testament. Um, you have, well, we won't get into that, but um, there's lots of examples we could give throughout the book of Revelation, taken from Daniel, taken from Isaiah and Jeremiah, taken from the sanctuary. But in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 3, it says, Another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. This would sound like the altar of incense for sure. And there was given to him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And uh, the smoke of the incense which came with the what? Prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angels' hands. And so this tells us that the incense was mingled with the prayers of the saints. And so we understand this to be talking, the incense once again to be talking about Jesus. And it's his righteousness, his merits that mingled with our prayers make our prayers acceptable unto God. And um, there was a special recipe, no surprise here, there was a special, special recipe that was to be followed in the different herbs, dried herbs that were put together and then ground. Do you notice a pattern here? Everything in the sanctuary, the oil is hammered or beaten. The, the wheat is ground and then sifted. The incense is to be pounded, grounded with a mortar and pestle. It's all being tried by pressure and by... By, uh, by trial, you might say, right? There's a specific recipe of herbs that was to be concocted for this incense, and there was, it was forbidden that that recipe should be used any other time. You couldn't just take it home and say, I like that smell, and take it home and make that recipe and use it for your camp. Um, no, not at all. This was only to be used in the sanctuary service. And uh, when we get to Psalm chapter 141, we notice Psalm, the psalmist uses this same symbolism as he says in Psalm 141 and verse 2, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So that incense represented the prayers of God's people, or at least mingled with the prayers of God's people would be ascending to the throne of God. Now, it's very interesting, and I think it's very comforting, that as instructions were given to the moving of the tabernacle, suppose they were to strike camp and the camp of Israel would be moving to another location, they would, 
it would be quite a process to take this whole thing down, as you can imagine. Um, those of you who were here a week ago Sunday remember the process just of putting up this, this tabernacle, and we didn't have all the sacrifices and incenses and breads and everything else. It was just models, you know, um, as not gold, um, as not heavy. Um, but imagine striking the real sanctuary and taking it down and, and moving it and getting all the Levites assigned to what they were going to carry and everything else. The very last article of furniture to cease to function was the altar of incense. It's interesting, isn't it? And uh, I think, I personally think that that's symbolic of the fact that even after the Day of Atonement is completed, we'll talk about that more um, in coming presentation, God's intercession for his people will continue. We always have Jesus as our intercessor pleading in our behalf. Um, and I think that's very, very um, important to remember. Now, as we were to, if we were to look at this overview of the sanctuary once again, I want us to just do a little bit of a review. And we were to come with a lamb into the courtyard, somewhere over here on the north side of the courtyard, between the altar and the tabernacle is where the slaughtering was taking place. Some would put the laver actually opposite, a little bit out of line. Um, most people do draw it in line. I don't know if that matters that much, but here you would see the slaughtering taking place, and the sinner would come in and place his hand on the head of the lamb and confess his sin by figure or um, symbolizing the transfer of guilt to the innocent sacrifice, right? And then with his own hand, he would take the knife offered by the priest and would slice the throat of that sacrifice, taking the life of the lamb um, that would die in his place. Of course, this pointed forward to Jesus, right? And as the rest of the ceremony went on, as the priest would take some of that sacrifice and take to the altar burnt offering, as he would then take it and he would wash his feet before going into the holy place, and he would sprinkle some of it on the horns of the altar of incense uh, before the veil, um, the sinner actually did none of that, right? The priest did it. The sinner only followed by faith as he went into the sanctuary. The priest was ministering on the sinner's behalf. Is this very clear to you all? And so while we're talking today, and we talked last night, about how the altar might represent our surrender, Paul says, give yourselves as living sacrifices, right? We might see the altars representing the surrender of our life to Jesus. We might see the labor as representing the washing, the labor of water by the word, Paul says. And we looked at that last night. The exact same word from the Septuagint for labor is used by Paul in those two instances, Titus 3.5 and Ephesians 5.26. And so we see that this washing of the water, the study of God's word and the following of Hib's example in baptism could be symbolized by this. We see the table of showbread. Could it be that eating the bread of life, studying the word of God is a part of the daily experience that we are to have as Christians. We see the altar of incense representing prayer and the, the incense being a symbol mingled with the prayer of God's saints. Do we need to be spending on a daily basis time in prayer? Yes, we do. We see the, all, the uh, candlestick, the light, the Holy Spirit flowing through God's people lights the world. Are we called to witness for Jesus? Yes, we are. But I want you to see something. I want you to see that all of this is only possible by faith 
as we follow our priest into the holy place. Are you with me? If there's anything, some people might say, well, okay, well, to be saved, what I have to do is I have to be baptized. Well, Jesus said to be born again of water. I'm not going to argue with you, but baptism itself isn't meritorious, is it? Well, if I'm going to be saved, then I need to go through the holy place. I need to eat, eat the bread. I need to study the word of God. Is that a good thing? Absolutely. But will studying the word of God by itself save you? No. It, it all starts out here at the altar, right? With the surrender. Um, okay, we need to witness. But is witnessing itself going to save you? Is there anything salvific in a witnessing experience? What about prayers by themselves? I mean, we see if you go to Rome, you've got to go to the Scala Santa across from the... The, the Cathedral of St. John the Lateran, you have the holy staircase where people will be praying, especially if you go after rush hour and um, about 5, 5.30 in the afternoon when people get off work. And the, the stairs will be so crowded that as um, nobody can move on the staircase, they're all kneeling on stairs, nobody can move without everybody moving because they're just crammed under the staircase. And they're all saying the rosary. And of course, the drops of blood supposedly that fell from Jesus onto those marble stairs. The stairs are all covered with wood, but they're little plexiglass windows, so you can still see the same stains of the drops of blood, supposedly. And everyone wants to, to kiss those windows. Not exactly the most hygienic situation, but nonetheless, um, you see these people praying, and your heart just breaks. Not because many of them aren't sincere, and God only knows their hearts, not to judge them, but they can go directly to Jesus. They have a high priest they can pray to. They don't have to pray the rosary on that stair. And uh, those prayers by themselves can't save them, can they? What I want you to see is that the sanctuary does not teach any type of a salvation by works. Yes, I think we can learn lessons about spending time in God's Word and spending time in prayer and spending time in witnessing. I think all those are applicable lessons that we can, we can draw from the sanctuary. But if there's one thing that the sinner does, and only one thing the sinner does actually himself, the rest is done followed by faith, his, his priest does for him. The one thing that the sinner does, what's that? Well, yeah, you could say that. I was thinking the one thing the sinner really is responsible for is killing the lamb. And if there's anything we're responsible for that we can take credit for, friends, it's, for, it's killing Jesus. That's not going to earn our way to heaven, is it? Well, we've got to realize the message of the sanctuary is a message that points us to Jesus as our only hope. He is the bread. He is the light. His righteousness is mingled with our prayers. He is the priest. He is the water. His is the sacrifice for us. What do we have to show for ourselves? We killed Jesus. That's, that's our bragging rights. We killed Jesus. And it ought to make us spend some time humbling our hearts, maybe bowing at the foot of that cross, spiritually, of course, and saying, Lord, we're nothing, but you can save even a sinner like me. I'm thankful for Jesus, aren't you? It's all about him. It's all about what he has done and can do and will do for us that matters. The only thing we can really take credit for 
is for killing Jesus. And I don't find very many Christians going out there and bragging about that. I don't think that makes us feel more proud or better, better about ourselves. It makes us realize we have nothing to brag about. We can only look to Jesus. We can only, we can only accept his death and his ministry in our behalf. And that's our only hope. It's my only hope. And I'm thankful I have that hope. How about you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the lessons we learn from the sanctuary. Thankful, thank you that we can see, even in this very brief overview of the sanctuary, the holy place uh, furniture, thank you that we can see that it's all about you. Yes, we might draw lessons and learn about how we are to live one day at a time, with the washing of water of the word, with the eating of the bread of life, with the prayer, the breath of the soul that ascends with your righteousness to the throne of God, with our witness. Lord, but ultimately we're just reminded that we can only do these things through Jesus. Anything that we tried to do on our own would be, it wouldn't just be no, of no value, it would be blasphemous. We need Jesus. And so today, I just thank you that we have Jesus. We have a Savior who will save to the uttermost all who come unto God by him. He's promised that those who come to him, he will for no reason cast aside. He, he's promised that he's able to make us more than conquerors through him that loved us. And so today, Lord, we, we realize that we have a high priest who, who understands the pain of bruising, of beating, of being ground for flour and beaten for oil and pounded for incense. And because we have that kind of a Savior, that kind of a Jesus, we can come and He understands us and we can come boldly to ask for grace to help in time of need. So today, I just want to pray for that grace. And I want to pray for each person here. Lord, only you know the challenges, the struggles they face, the difficulties they go through. Only you know the experiences in their lives. And, but yet, Lord, you do know those. And I thank you that you will come near to them and that you will help them through the challenges, through the difficulties, through the trials. That if you were able to overcome through the grace and the, for the, through the strength of your Father and by staying submitted to him, that we also, because we have you as our high priest, we can overcome as well. So today I just thank you and I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.